Ah, God, it's so fucked up. It's so fucked up. I, it's just like... It, it just continuously adds to that, you know, in Greenfield's words, adds to the credential. There's something fucking weird happening and people are tapping into it. A lot of them, most of them unconscious. And for some reason, it's happening a shitload in Kentucky. And now... Because this is what's weird to me is... I mean, it's strange that there was such a massive occult presence in Cincinnati, now in Somerset, in in Lexington, in in the in this whole area, and it just disappears. Because there's places that are known for being occult hotspots. Kentucky was never one of them. Cincinnati was never one of them. But it's like all of a sudden there's all of this history that's that's been paved over that's being peeled away and it's because people are paying attention to it and now it makes me wonder what's going to happen in 10 years <laughs> yeah you know what i mean like what's yeah. this place going to look like in 10 fucking years is it going to look like the turn of the century again where there's just fucking warring occultists everywhere is it going to be because of fucking penny royal is it going to be because of hellier and recorded at Pure Grain Studios. I'm Nathan Isaac, and this is Penny Royal. had article like i'm literally looking at my boards right here i have old articles that i'd found in newspapers about dan dutton the fawn uh and the secret commonwealth and i'm like what is this fucking dude from somerset so interested in pan and and fairy lore for and i think we even might have even brought him up with you while we were there uh that was afterwards that was actually afterwards that's crazy it was when i started texting you that you were like i'm sitting here looking at dan dutton on my wall you know and i was like what the fuck you know so anyway that definitely was um that was crazy greg newkirk is a well-known paranormal researcher and co-curator with his wife dana of the traveling museum of the paranormal both are probably most recently recognizable from the television series hell year which they produced along with Carl Pfeiffer, Connor Randall, and Tyler Strand. Hellier is an investigation into the possible return of the Hopkinsville Goblins and a deeper mystery at the heart of Kentucky. So the Hellier investigation uh, technically began in 2012. Uh, I had received an email to the Ghost Hunters Incorporated email address, my, my defunct teenage ghost hunting team and it was from this guy who said his name was david m christie and he was from hellier kentucky and said there were little creatures coming out of a mine shaft on the edge of his property these little creatures were tapping on his kids windows at night they were doing weird things like stealing christmas wreaths and shoving them shoving them into 
mailboxes and stealing his kids' toys and they stole his dog and it seemed too good to be true. And uh, so I sent an email back and said, uh, well, you know, if this is all true, you need to give me some more details. I was living in Canada at the time and I was like, I can't come down to rural Kentucky because of a weird email. And so he's like, all right, fine. Give me a few days. And he emails back and has all these photos of three-toed footprints and what he says were photos of the creatures. Look like they're peeking behind a tree. And that – he he also added that a man by the name of Terry Rist had said he was a mutual friend and said, uh, contact this guy. He can help you, which makes no sense because the email came to a teenager's website. You know, it's kids with bladed batarangs and swords and axes and uh, bowling shirts. It, it didn't make any sense. And so uh, – I thought, okay, this is enough to get me interested. This guy has hard evidence that there are goblins coming out of a mine in this town in rural Kentucky. Uh, And so we started to make plans, and then the guy disappeared. And we didn't hear anything of him. And uh, it was the next year that Terry emailed us. And he said... Hellier was just a symptom. For every door closed, a window must be opened. Uh, Use the numbers. And there was a sequence of numbers that looked like GPS coordinates. And they looked like they were GPS coordinates to Brown Mountain, which is a place we had just been uh, a couple months earlier looking for the entrance to uh, an alleged alien cave base uh, that was mentioned in the only book that... Terry Rist is mentioned in, which is Alan Greenfield's secret cipher of the Euphonauts. And from there, it just went off the rails to the point where we left it alone for several years until my friend Carl Pfeiffer had uh, a series of crazy coincidences, synchronicities, you could call them, and said, we need to go and see if we can find David. And he and our friend Connor drove out from Colorado with some cameras, and we went to Hellier. And that's sort of consumed our lives for the last three or four years. Uh, Back in 1955, in the uh, Kelly Hopkinsville area of Western Kentucky, there was a pretty famous ufological incident uh, where uh, the Sutton Farmhouse was besieged by what the media called Little Green Men. Um, they dubbed them the, the Hopkinsville goblins and they were these little diminutive alien creatures that had, uh, they were knocking on the windows of the house and they were approaching, there were like half a dozen of them approaching this farmhouse and the Sutton family freaked out and actually fired at these creatures and it became like just a national news story where i mean it just the the more times the story was told the crazier it got but the sutton family you know a dozen people witnessed these creatures and the police came out and did sketches of them and it was believed to be one of the the most astounding ufo uh, alien contact cases that's ever happened um i think even project blue book uh which was headed by j allen Hynek. 
uh, investigated it. You know, there were a lot of silly ideas about, oh, they were just owls or they were escaped circus monkeys was, I think, the craziest thing I, I heard. But it was really one of those stories that started the term little green men. What what tweaked us was the fact that these emails from David were very reminiscent of the Hopkinsville case. I mean, you have this this house in, in rural Kentucky and there's a family that lives there and they're being harassed by these little creatures that they believe are extraterrestrial. So while David never used the term uh, goblin, uh, that seemed to us, I mean, it, it just seemed this is exactly what's happening. Uh, the, what's happening in 1955 is happening again in 2012. And that's why we were so interested in this case. A few years later, Dane and I were contacted to shoot a sizzle reel pitch for a TV show. And we weren't supposed to star in it or anything like that. We were just, they needed an interesting case to send a comedian on. And they saw our write-up about the David story and said, would you guys be interested in taking this comedian to go look for goblins? And we thought, well, you know, it, it, it sounds fun. So we went down. They found a place in uh, 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 Cave City, in, right smack in the middle of Kentucky. And they – I mean the thing with a sizzle reel is it's nobody's going to see it. So they, they take certain liberties, right? So they said, let's do it in Cave City so we can get footage of you going caving because this was just internal meant to sell the show. So we we get there. And then we start to realize, well, there were these caves, this mammoth cave system runs the entirety of Kentucky. It's the, one of the largest cave systems in the world. Geraldine Sutton, the granddaughter of the people who had originally gone through the Sutton farmhouse attack, tells us there was a cave on the property where their farmhouse was, right where they had seen you know, the flash in the sky and where all this stuff had happened. We realized the Mammoth Cave system stretches up through eastern Kentucky, where Hellier is, where David's story was, and these creatures were coming out of a mine shaft. While we're in Cave City, caving, we're not even recording. And this, there's this little girl who was watching us, seeing what we were doing. And she comes up to us and she says, that man tell, tells me that you guys hunt monsters for a living. And I said, yeah, why? Have you seen any? And she was like, yeah, I have. And I was like, well, can you tell me about this? No one's recording. And she's like, well, there's these little guys and they come out of the caves and they knock on our windows at night. And I start freaking out and I'm like, give me a pen, give me paper. And she draws a Hopkinsville goblin and a three-toed footprint, knowing nothing about any of these stories, nothing about how any of this stuff is connected. And that's when we really started to realize well, what if these creatures are somehow connected to the mammoth cave system? And all along the Appalachians, people are experiencing these same things. They're just giving them different names because they're not talking to each other. They don't know what each other's seeing. So some of them are saying holler goblins. Some of them are saying Tommy knockers. Some of them are saying aliens. It's all the same thing. In uh, 2013, Dana and I got offered jobs working for a, a travel startup in Cincinnati, and it was too good to say no. So we, sight unseen, 
I mean, we didn't have much to our name, but we got in a plane and came down to Cincinnati and started this job. And we realized, you know, a few months into this job, well, shit, we're only three, four hours from Hellier. Like, this is an opportunity to see if anything weird was actually going on out there. Let's, let's just drive out, take the temperature of this place. So we went and tested our new car. Like, one of the first places we went to test it was driving out to Hellier, Kentucky. And uh, I had printed out photos of the footprints and the creatures. And uh, we just drove in and we stopped at the local gas station and just started asking people questions. And, you know, at first... People are like, nah, nothing weird ever happens around here. Nah, I'd never heard of anybody named David Christie. Like, Christie? Nah, nobody out here is named Christie. But as we kept talking to them and warming them up, it was weird. It was like slowly removing a dam. And then all of a sudden, people were like, well, you know, there was this one time this gigantic UFO the size of a football field hovered over the town. But we didn't really think much of it. Or like telling weird stories like there is this time when some some strange man in a suit walked out of a cave and handed me a gold coin. Like weird stuff like that. Yeah, that didn't make it in the series. <laughs> but it's like weird stuff that just uh, – I mean there was so much bizarreness. I mean even, even Bigfoot stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. I seen big hairy creatures run across the road or even kids who were finding three-toed footprints up near the old Native American burial ground. Um, but you know, people talking about stuff coming out of caves, uh, it just took them a while to get there. And it, it was weird. Cause it almost felt like there was some block put up where they just either couldn't remember it or maybe they were scared. Um, you know, we look like city kids coming into a rural town and you know, they've got to be nervous about that. But, uh, there was weird stuff happening in Hellier and we even found a house that, fit every single detail of the David Christie story. And we knew at some point we would have to go back and see if there was weirder stuff happening there. One of the things that we wanted to follow up on were the connections to Indrid Cold. So Terry Wrist had become this weird shadow over this case. And there was an interesting thing that Terry did with the secret cipher, with Alan Greenfield's secret cipher of the Euphonauts. And in the appendix of the book, you can read about how he used the cipher to find Indrid Cold while Indrid Cold was hiding from uh, whatever forces he needed to hide from. And he, he didn't give all the details, but he gave just enough to figure out where Indrid Cold was living at the time. And he had taken the form of a black man which was completely new details. Like, you know, he'd originally appeared as this smiling man who looked like a 50s movie star. And so Carl decided to go and use the cipher. He figures out the cipher, figures out how it's used, and he sort of reverse engineers the details that are in Secret Cipher in that interview to figure out where Indrid was living, where Terry had met Indrid. Because the idea was if we could figure that out, if we could go there, if we could find this property, we knew that there was some truth to this story, even if it was just that this man, Terry, had stepped foot in this town. And the town it ended up being was Ashland, Kentucky. So we piled in the car and we had spent a night 
first, you know, we went to where Woody Derenberger had originally met Indrid Cold on the side of the highway. Uh, we went to Woody's old house. We went to Point Pleasant and we did an experiment in the domes. And, and uh, finally, we drove out to Ashland. And it was a spooky place. You know, the, the policeman that we interviewed even said, you know, there's a super high rate of mental illness here and no one can seem to figure it out. And there's so many that they have to ship them off across the state to other mental institutions. And you, the presence of, of all of the mounds in Ashland was weird because that tied directly into the book that we were reading, uh, The Rebirth of Pan. There's all this information about mounds there and all this information about how, you know, s strange things happen around these mounds. And there it is in, in Ashland, Kentucky. Uh, and we found, we, we went to the library, we went through records, we found the Wagon Wheel restaurant. It didn't exist anymore, but we found and stood at the exact spot where Terry claimed to have met Indrid Cold and knew at some point Whoever Terry was had been to this place. And that gave us a little more faith in the secret cipher and, and that we could use the secret cipher in this way. Well, I mean, the thing is, it's it, it's a story that only got our attention because of goblins. And, and it wouldn't have gotten our attention if someone said, there's some other intelligence sleeping in the caverns below Kentucky. You know, we'd have been like, okay, Lovecraft. And then like not not bothered because at the time, like we were into ghosts and monsters. And, you know, how often do you get an email about goblins? You know, that's something – I, I mean, I'd been Bigfoot hunting. I'd gone, hung out with vampires. Like, we tried to get abducted by aliens, but I'd never gone looking for goblins. So, of course, that got our attention. But by the end of the first season, we had had such a, a different experience than we'd expected. You know, we thought we were going to be making, uh, you know, The X-Files meets Catfish. That's what we thought we were doing. But by the end, you know... Our, our friend Connor had had a, a psychic impression popped into his head and we had gotten what seemed like prophetic information from some other intelligence. And now it had gone to this point where we thought sincerely we were speaking to some giant dreaming entity that was giving us directions to something bigger and weirder and deeper. And I think we could have ended season one at that point and been fine with it. But when we tried to stop, we were just dragged right back in by whatever that intelligence is. Right before the first season of Hellier was supposed to come out, we were doing a uh, – we do these live streams for uh, – we have museum members that support our museum. And so we were doing this private live stream, and in the middle of it, I you know we do it on our phones, and I see this email come in. And it immediately made my blood run cold because it was very much shades of the David M. Christie email. And at this point, no one knew what we were making. No one knew where we were. Like, we hadn't released it yet. Like, we were so secretive about it. We hadn't even released the name of the project we were making because we didn't want people to go there and, like, mess it up before we had a chance to put this project out. So this email comes in, and I can just see the the – heading and it says urgent you know please help and it's the same type of thing and so after the immediately after the live stream i go to read my email 
and it's from this woman, Amy, and it is almost like an answer to the David Christie emails. I've seen the green men. The heart of your green man is here. I'm in Somerset, Kentucky. Uh, She gives her name. She gives her birth date. She gives addresses, phone numbers, and she says she has evidence that there are these creatures living below Kentucky. She used trigger words that weren't public at the time that she shouldn't have known. Words like slough. Uh, She used the word euphonauts. And it was this just manic email. Looks like it had been typed on a phone. And I lost my shit because I said, here we go again. This is happening again. And we realized these emails came in right as our friend Tyler was preparing, like literally hours later, to go to Brown Mountain to the coordinate points to see what was there before we put this project out into the world. And so it seemed like a very clear message that someone or something was paying attention to what we were doing and going, here you go, here's the next step. It's Somerset. I emailed Amy back immediately and said, okay, you know, uh, did the opposite. <laughs> I said, tell me where, where we need to go, what happened, give me as many details as you possibly can. And throughout the next day and a half, it was a flurry of emails that were talking about how she only knew about this stuff because she had heard a woman screaming in the woods, blood curdling screams. She went to follow them and she found a cabin And she said that there was an elevator in this cabin that went down into the cave system. She found human remains. She said they were there were people torturing people. There was a cult, and they were worshiping the green man. Uh, She said that there was some military presence in the area that had something to do with all of this occult phenomena. She said that they had this this well organized cult that was sacrificing people had serpent carved staffs that opened up holes into mountainsides and they could go into the mountain uh, and perform their rituals and that there were these little diminutive creatures that sounded exactly like the goblins in the David story in the Hopkinsville story and they sort of had a glowish green tint to them in the dark and they were worshiping these creatures and it was just this twisted version of the stuff we had already been looking into, but with this really dark ritualistic undertone that was frankly a little scary. Our first impression coming to Somerset was obviously tainted by the stories that we'd heard. We were a little freaked out coming to Somerset. You know, we didn't tell anybody what we were there for. Um, my friend Tyler and I, we had come to Somerset to do recon like a little ways before. And Tyler had dug up all of these stories of, of bodies that had been found outside of caves, uh, you know, missing people, even like crazy stories of, of giant hairy creatures and, uh, vampires even. Um, and he had printed all of this stuff out and we had gone, we'd, we'd gone to this one cave that we found while we were on recon. After we promised my wife, we wouldn't do it. We did it anyway. We were too excited and heard what sounded a lot like whispering in this cave. And we, like whispering. 
in this game. I started feeling comfortable. We left. We came back with the whole group of people, and I thought that was going to make me more comfortable, but it didn't. <laughs> I was still really freaked out. I We didn't tell anyone what we were there for. We, we didn't want anyone to know why we were there. We rented a cabin. Uh, you know, in a rural, a rural part, like 10 minutes outside of town and we're just very nervous. And it honestly felt like a very strange place. It felt weird. We felt the same kind of dream, like feeling that we felt when we were in Point Pleasant and when we were in Ashland, it just has this otherworldly quality to it. While doing research for season two, I was sent a PDF copy of a book that was very, very difficult to obtain. It was sort of a – it was one of those holy grail books for a lot of Fordians. Uh, it was by a guy by the name of Jim Brandon, and there were only really two books put out by this guy. Um, one was called Weird America, and this one was called Rebirth of Pan. These books were so rare that you had to – I mean you had to like get it through interlibrary loan if you were a PhD at a college or you could drive three hours to the nearest major city and sit down in a room with one of these copies, which is really strange because it's – I mean it was just this book that was all about the mound builders and strange ley lines in America and things like that. Um, so I get a PDF copy of this book of which none existed at the time. Like somebody who was a PhD said, hey, I got a copy of this. You want a copy? I said, yeah, absolutely. So I start reading this book and I realize that there are connections to the ideas of three-toed footprints, and there, are, which is you know one of the biggest things we were researching in Hellier. These goblins had three-toed footprints. Talking about uh, paranormal creatures coming out of mine shafts. Uh, and... It relates all of this phenomena that we were studying, we were experiencing, to this idea that there is this slumbering entity that is beginning to wake and we're getting signs of it, which is exactly how we felt by the time we were done in Hellier. Jim Brandon called this entity Pan. And I mean, it was really not necessarily because of the Greek God, but because Pan stood for all. And this seemed to be this grand spirit of all. So the problem is, obviously, <laughs> if you start to research Jim Brandon, you find out this guy's name is not Jim Brandon. That's a pen name. And he has written uh, allegedly under the name William Grimstad, some very inflammatory stuff. And we even had conversations about whether or not to include the book in Hellier at all because the William Grimstad stuff was so troubling and, and, and just not great. But this, whatever he had done, this pan thing came up over and over and over again. It, like it was just a stepping stone. Like we were supposed to figure out that, that pan played some part in what we were doing in Hellier. And then once we had figured that out, all of this other stuff started to come to us. And it was, uh, it gave us direction as to what rituals we were going to perform, wh what we were going to start looking for. 
and relating all of this stuff to to Pan. Whether you want to call it the, the, the Greek god or whether you want to call it the spirit of all, the giant slumbering entity, the intelligence, it all came back to Pan. And it was really because of that book that we got to that place. One of the one of the biggest things in this book were all of the connections to Pan and the idea of the green man. These things made us recontextualize a lot of the stories that we were getting, uh, particularly from Amy. Because Amy, she says, the heart of your green man is here in Somerset. And we just assumed, oh, the little green man, the, the, the aliens. But after reading Rebirth of Pan, we're like, oh, shit. Well, the green man is just this nature spirit. It's Pan. And we start going down that rabbit hole, and then it's, well – the Bigfoot. He's a woodwose. He's one of the green men. And so people are seeing these strange Bigfoot-like entities coming out of mines and caves. Uh, Pan was worshipped in caves. Pan was worshipped in holes in, in the earth. Uh, all of these ideas of of Pan, the horned god, you know, one of the things Amy talks about is um, she thought that they were Wiccans, right? Wiccans were performing these ceremonies, which, you know, my wife is a practicing witch and you know she would roll her eyes at that but again you have another allusion to the green man the the horned god the wiccan's horned god um you start to see how this horned god pops up over and over and over in in many many different cultures uh as kirnanos um you know you can even look at that appearances of the harlequin the harlequin is another version of the green man and if you look at it, it looks just like the original drawings of the man in black. So you see that Pan, the horned god, is this entity that appears in many of these paranormal reports uh, over thousands of years. And realize there's this link between everything that we're looking for, everything that people are experiencing, and it comes back to a horned god, the green man. We felt strongly that what we were doing, whatever message we were getting from whatever intelligence uh, was telling us to do a ritual. And Dana sat down and she did all of this in this research and she put together a ritual that was really a ritual meant to uh, invoke Pan, this, this god of all. And we found a cave in Somerset that uh, fit all of the points we needed. We needed it to be on a border. It was by bridge. All of these things that pointed to the liminality we were researching. And we went and did this, this ritual. Dana was supposed to do it. She was supposed to lead it. But she just felt like she couldn't connect with it. So at the last minute, she asked me to do it, which was a very big deal for me. I would have never done anything like that in another life. Um, and we go and we do this, we do this ritual to pan in this cave and maybe it was an ego death. Maybe it was something that needed to happen mentally or magically. Uh, and after that, we felt like at least for now we were done with what we needed to do in Somerset. We were freaked out by the cults. I mean, the, the irony is not lost on me that we were afraid that we were going to meet people <laughs> that we had heard rumors were in these caverns worshiping the devil. It's the irony's not lost on me that at the end of the day, we ended up being the people in the caves summoning, for all intents and purposes, the devil. 
Maybe that was the point. I don't know. There's a lot we're still trying to work through with that. But what freaked me out was a couple months later, the series comes out and you, Nate, text me in the morning all about how you guys were doing stuff for a big pan ritual too. Out in Elkhorn City, which is literally a hop, skip, and a jump from Hellier, Kentucky. Insane that people would be on to the same thing, never met each other before, never had any idea. It's one of those things that makes me wonder if there is something that is uh, collectively gently pushing people all in the same direction. When the show came out, I stayed up. You know, it was late. Yeah. Uh, I remember like you texted me that same morning. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I was like, I watched the episode we were in. I just I just wanted to of see. Of course. Like, did, I, did I come off as a crazy How person? How do I look? You know? Yeah, of course. And, and, uh, and then I watched the finale, right? Because yeah. I saw that it was the Night of Pan. And I was like, what the fuck? Because I remember when I first saw that. Because I didn't know anything about the, you know, the second season. Or we didn't even know that you were really shooting the second season. We didn't, we, you, you we know, didn't like, honestly, the, the most anyone heard about what we were doing was you guys. When you started going off on the stuff that we were looking into, when you were like verifying everything, I was like, fuck, we have to tell him. Because we just we're so secretive about what we're doing. We just didn't want anyone to know, and particularly because we were like we felt like we were in enemy territory. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we didn't we didn't want anyone to be like, hey, these people are in here and they're looking into this stuff. You know, this 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 cult. Uh, we should go fuck with them. We were scared of that. Well, I mean, it's a it's a very like it's a high possibility of something like that, you know, and like, yeah, like, but. but so when I saw the pain thing, though, because I've been working on the film with Dan, you know, about I know, his dude. experience, man. And, and like the final scene in that film is to go, you know, we've shot a shit ton of the movie. Right. And so and we've been training these people to and obviously COVID happened. And we couldn't go. You know, right. but we're still going to go. But uh, to Elkhorn City and then and perform this his opera, The Fawn, in the woods to see if it will cause I know, I know, it's fucked up. But when it, when I saw you guys perform the the night of Pan, you know, the or the Pan ritual in the caves, I was like, Jesus Christ, you know, like how is this even possible? Because you didn't Dude. know anything that uh, that we were doing, no, you know, other than I see, what I the told only you. the only thing I knew was was uh I knew we had a potential contact with Kyle, and so he's the only, literally, aside from Amy. The only person I knew from down there. And so I figured – I thought it was going to be very much the same type of deal as Hellier. We, we were going to go to this town and we were going to uh, talk to some locals. And I thought, well, Kyle will have some cool stories. I mean he's local, obviously. He has a paranormal museum. So when he introduced us to you guys and then you just start rattling stuff off about hooded figures and interlopers and little creatures. I mean, dude, and that we didn't even talk about pan while we were there. It wasn't until you had texted me the next day when I started to freak out. I couldn't believe that. I mean, that, that was just shocking. But I think that for me, when that happened, that's when it solidified. Like after we talked to you guys here, 
I was at the point where I was like, there's absolutely no cult. Right. And, and, and then you guys told us that. And after you left, man, we sat up here and I was flipping the fuck out because I was like, oh, my God, what if I've started investigating something that could put my family in danger? Connor, you know? Connor quit. Connor quit the project. I mean, he, he said we need to leave. We need to pack up. We need to leave and not come back. We were so scared. After we finished the interview with Greg and Carl and Connor, and they left town, we were really, really freaked out by the implications of what we had just heard and what we had discussed with them. I had told them the paranormal stories and some of the research into the geomagnetic energy and the quartz, but when I spoke to them about the murders in town, And when Greg revealed to me that he had been contacted by a woman from Somerset who had sent him emails asking for help because she had discovered a cult operating here in Somerset, well, it it just confirmed everything that we had been researching and everything that I had written off and didn't really think was a possibility, that it was just rumor, it was just hearsay. But here was another woman who had contacted a group outside of town, outside of the county. And obviously there's a mystery and a strangeness to, the, to why she contacted Greg. There's a paranormal museum here in town. Kyle is the curator. But she didn't mention anything about this strangeness to Kyle. Instead, she reached out to Greg and to Greg's old email address on a defunct page that he didn't even maintain anymore. So there are lots of questions in terms of why she contacted him and if there's something deeper going on there. But after the Hellier crew left town and we were left with a bit of confirmation that something might be going on, I told everyone we needed to stop. We needed to let things cool off, and and we put it to the side for a bit. Again, we never intended to try to solve any murders. We weren't trying to find a cult. We weren't trying to expose any conspiracy happening here in town. It was more so a fascination with how anyone could even allege these things and why these stories even existed and persisted here in Somerset, Kentucky, of all places. And then when the show came out, when season two of Hellier premiered, things got really, really weird. Immediately, it struck me that the episode that we were in is titled The Secret Commonwealth. And when we spoke to Greg here at the studio, he never mentioned anything about fairies or Pan or Faye or anything or Dan Dutton. And obviously the name of that episode is the same name as Dan's opera cycle, The Secret Commonwealth. Then I saw that the title of the season finale was The Night of Pan. And so when I watched that episode, I realized that they were performing a ritual to Pan And Greg didn't know anything about Dan and I working on the fawn. 
he didn't know that we were going to Elkhorn City as part of the finale of the Fawn film to restage the Fawn opera in Brakes Interstate Park in Elkhorn City and, in effect, perform a ritual to Pan. And I could not believe that that was the finale to the second season of Hellier. It seemed too incredible. And the fact that this pan current runs throughout that second season, the fact that they were, that so much emphasis is placed on the rebirth of pan and the three-toed footprints and this folklore of, of, a, of a presence of something deeper, something subterranean. But there's no denying the strangeness of the intersection between Hellier and the Pennyroyal mystery and Dan's The Fawn and Dan Dutton himself and the fact that so much of his work deals with mythology and pan. And to think that the Hellier crew started in Hellier, Kentucky, which is basically a suburb of Elkhorn City and they came from there to Somerset to perform a ritual to Pan and Dan and I went from Somerset, Kentucky to Elkhorn City to Hellier to perform a ritual to Pan it's incredible that those two things happened Once season two of Hellier was out, we also started to talk to people that were getting involved in that investigation. People were feeling very connected to Hellier in strange, synchronistic ways. They were feeling as if somehow they were personally invested in Hellier. They were seeing these blue balloons. Just the little things, little synchronicities seemed to be cropping up in people's lives that made them really feel like somehow whatever the phenomena was in Hellier, that they had looked at it and it was looking back at them. People were also performing a number of experiments, like the God Helmet experiment or the Estes method or remote viewing. And the remote viewing part was really what intrigued me because one remote viewer specifically made a post in the Hellier Reddit thread that described an incredible experience. And to me, knowing what we knew, this remote viewer touched upon numerous pieces of information. And so I contacted that remote viewer and asked if we could speak. And so we met Bailey, and Bailey was gracious enough to tell us what was seen in that remote viewing session. Bailey didn't know anything about Hellier at the time. We wanted to hear firsthand what it was exactly that Bailey had experienced. What were you going to say? Sorry, I was just going to say, you know, I think thoughts are like frequency. There's a lot of documentation about that. And like when you think about certain things, you attract them because you're like resonating that same frequency that they like survive on, right? So it's, it makes a lot of sense why these synchronicities always happen. 
Yeah, when I first remote viewed, like I didn't know what Hellier was. I didn't know what Somerset was. I remote viewed, I remote viewed Hellier, and I saw some things. I didn't know that they could have been relevant because I hadn't seen it yet. And like the the second that I started remote viewing Somerset, like that shit got wild. Like it was so weird. The it seems like there's such a small fabric between like the spiritual side and like the physical realm there. And I I was just seeing all kinds of like weird spirits and things that you don't see like anywhere else as far as I've like done. It, it was so weird. Yeah, I do a lot of meditating and I focus a lot on just like clearing my thoughts and and like just like kind of repeating the same phrase. Like when I was trying to think about Hellier, I didn't really know what it was. So in my head, I was just thinking Hellier, Hellier over and over again for like 15 minutes and then I stopped thinking. Uh, and then, you know, within a few minutes, I just got this like big flashes of a bunch of different images and then I posted them on Reddit. I mean, there was, it felt kind of weird, but it was relatively calm for what I was expecting. But I, I had also just come out of like a very different remote viewing session where I was focused on some really weird things that I, it was weird. But I think that um, afterward, I was a bit out of energy and I, I felt like I wasn't seeing a lot. And I was actually surprised how much was on point after I watched the documentary. But yeah, the first thing I saw was like a, a doll of the Incredible Hulk, I think it was. And like, I didn't even realize that was related until after I'd seen the documentary, after I posted about it. And someone comes in and goes, yo, the Incredible Hulk, that's a green man. There was one frame in Hellier where it's just like a transitional frame where you see a tree in the bottom right of the screen and the moon in the top left corner. And like, I saw that image verbatim. The only difference is that the focal point may have been a bit out and there was like a spirit floating around right next to the tree. When I saw that, I was like, holy hell, that's another one that I saw that I totally thought was just random stuff. Yeah. So weird. When I, when I was finishing up the Somerset one, it felt like something had kind of pulled me away from Somerset. And I saw a, a face that looked like it may have been like a gray alien. It may have even been one of the gray, gray men. I don't know. But like, um, as I saw that, I just like kind of tried to pull away from it and I couldn't if that makes sense yeah and all of a sudden i saw a box kind of faded behind it and then the head faded away and now whenever i try to remove you i just see this box sitting there like every once in a while i can see outlines of things but it's not a whole picture anymore it's just a box it's really weird but oh. the thing that i saw was um it was facing kind of like through a cavern like a hallway and this is in one of my comments as well but it's facing down the hallway and there's kind of like a, a wood kind of cabinet with next to it, there's a skeleton wearing like armor or something, just kind of like hanging out there. Um, but it seemed like armor or something. Uh, I think the stairs were going up, but I saw what I think was a basement under it that was pitch black, but I may have messed that up because I think that could have also been the caves, yeah. but somebody I think was being kept there. I have a strong sensation that someone's being kept there. Maybe not now, but at the time that I was viewing it. Yeah, in terms of the cult stuff, um, I mean, there definitely could be a cult, you know, uh, I think. Oh, there absolutely is, yeah. I'm, I'm into Thelema, and I think that as I watched this, I was just like, yeah, this is a ritual of some sort. Uh, if you look back in the last six months, the FBI released a new document called The Finders, and it talks about um, state-run organizations who do things like putting caverns into um, pantries in state-run babysitting operations where they actually would kidnap children and do these things in like and it's documented on fbi.gov like you can just go look up the finders and read through that document it is wild i think it's like 400 pages though no way 
Yeah, and every single page is about this kind of stuff. Like, it just got released in three to six months ago. When Bailey mentioned the Finders cult, none of us were familiar with the Finders or any news that documents had been released by the FBI. But Bailey was absolutely right. You find that in November of 2019, the FBI released over 300 pages of documents that relate to the Finders. Who are the Finders? They're a D.C.-based organization with origins that date back well before World War II. The Finders cult became front-page news in February of 1987 when a woman in Tallahassee, Florida, called the cops on two men who were playing in the park with six unkempt children. The men themselves were wearing suits and were well-dressed, but the children looked disheveled and dirty. When police officers questioned the two men, they discovered that they were not the fathers of any of the children. The following are the words of Special Agent U.S. Customs Service, Ramon J. Martinez. The instructions included the impregnation of female members of the community, known as the finders, purchasing children, trading, and kidnapping. There were telex messages using MCI account numbers between a computer terminal believed to be located in the same room and others located across the country and in foreign locations. One such telex specifically ordered the purchase of two children in Hong Kong to be arranged through a contact in the Chinese embassy there. Other documents identified interests in high-tech transfers to the United Kingdom, numerous properties under the control of the finders, a keen interest in terrorism, explosives, and the evasion of law enforcement. The day after he released this report, February 6, 1987, Martinez proceeded to the finder's warehouse at 1307 4th Street. If anything, the take in the warehouse was more horrifying than what was discovered at Colt headquarters. Amongst the documents that they found, Martinez says, there was an album which contained a series of photos of adults and children dressed in white sheets participating in a blood ritual. The ritual centered around the execution of at least two goats. The photos portrayed the execution, disembowelment, skinning, and dismemberment of the goats at the hands of the children. This included the removal of the testes of a male goat, the discovery of a female goat's womb, and the baby goats inside the womb, and the presentation of a goat's head to one of the children. Martinez additionally found documents which indicated something of a more clandestine nature. Further inspection of the premises disclosed numerous files relating to activities of the organization in different parts of the world. Locations I observed are as follows. London, Germany, the Bahamas, Japan, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Africa, Costa Rica, and Europe. There was one file entitled Pentagon Break-In and others referring to members operating in foreign countries. When Martinez arrived at the Metropolitan Police Department to discuss the case with Detective Bradley, Bradley was unavailable. Instead, Martinez was asked to speak to an unidentified third party who could only speak off the record. All passport data had been turned over to the State Department, who told the Metropolitan Police Department that the passports and the travel represented by the passports was within the law even though this involved travel to Moscow, North Korea, and North Vietnam from the late 1950s to mid-1970s. 
Further, Martinez was told that the investigation into the activity of the finders had become a CIA internal matter. The Metropolitan Police Department report has been classified secret and was not available for review. And that was the case until November of 2019 when the FBI released most of the documents in the file. In one of the early emails that Amy sent Greg, she stated, In July, me and my ex-boyfriend were staying in a camper near the lake. It was very secluded, no running water, no electricity, nothing. But nature, me, and him, and a few flashlights and beam lanterns. Late one night, we believed a bobcat scream that it got deeper and began saying words, pleading for whatever or whoever to stop the torture. I immediately ran to rescue. My boyfriend grabbed me and pulled me back in, maniacally turning lights off and covering my mouth. He said, there's nothing we can do for her with no weapons besides getting ourselves killed too. I had to listen to her for the next 30 minutes until she grew silent. Finally, daylight came and I began the hunt, tracking and marking each track as I searched. I hiked to discover a cabin that I had in fact been familiar with for 17 years, but it seemed like I was seeing the cabin for the first time. Caged windows and doors, and not one but two thick log chains, and a gate across the drive with military-grade padlocks on the thick metal cage entrance. No way in. Mind you, I was determined to help, so I crawled in under the cage and went in against my better judgment. Beds were chained to rafters. In the attic, blood and feces stained the beds, trap doors, booby traps, weird designs, and human bones. I found bleeding bowls, human teeth, bone carvings, weird photos, and a lot of paperwork. They have a system. They park cars at them and set timers for the power. And then they tunnel underground. Faces in the trees. I called the police, and they all but told me they needed more. I had nothing but breaking and entering to go with. I found that I now was in definite danger when I learned they were performing rituals based on pagan Wiccan beliefs. I'm alone with no family or friends. All have been ruined by this craziness. I'm terribly scared, and I've found that this entire town is a part of it. It's ground zero. The out-of-towners are members, and the local elders? Well, they're all aware. Trust me. The caves and the caverns and the mines go from Virginia to Ohio to Indiana and Tennessee. I have a boat to take to the entrance, but I do not want to go in them again until I know I have backup that they're afraid of. I've seen things that will blow your mind and forever change your reality for good. It did mine, and now I'm scared, alone, and hopeless. And I'm turning to you. Please, tread quietly. I can't go back to get photos of the blood, hair, teeth. I have them actually in a secure location. The green man is a god they worship. I believe that they held their victims captive underground. You always hear the hum of the ground. It wasn't until the Beltane holiday that I realized it was to be a holiday feast. Big South Fork is where they have held the green man for ages. 
Okay, so what, awesome. So what were you going to tell me about? <laughs> so um, I just went to the store, um, and <laughs> Pamela was there. I thought, oh, that's weird. So um, I went and talked to her, um, you know, normal, normal shit at first. Uh, but I just had to ask her about some of the stuff that, you know, Greg and them said. Um, so I, I asked her to talk a little bit more about like the cult thing that she talked about and she like went into detail. She actually told, set a place this time, um, Mount Victory Mines. Um, I, I, she said it's in the county. Um, and that that is like one of these mines specifically is where a lot of these rituals that she had to go through, uh, like that washing of the waters and like the, like legitimately the, the cave, the mine that she threw the body parts down Seriously? for the sacrifices. Like <laughs> it's literally in this Mount Victory Mines area. After Kyle spoke with Pamela and we had a location, Kyle found an article in the New York Times from 1975 that indicated that there was a Mount Victory Coal Company and a Mount Victory Mine, and it was owned by Lester Burns Jr., and he sold it to a man that the New York Times article referred to as Mr. X, a man named Alexander Guterma. Produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. Original musical score by Philip Clonch. Edited and mixed by Boone Williams. Sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation and diving deeper into the story, visit pennyroyalpodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening and keep digging.